Today's sermon text is John 17, uh, verses 1 through 5, and Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's um, a pleasure to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, we are going to be studying... Uh, a handful of verses over the next uh, four or five services. And uh, those verses are all in John chapter 17. John 17. Um, I want to say this, though, first about God's word before we move any further. We believe as followers of Jesus that God's word is God. God's word is Jesus. It's who he is. When we go to the scriptures, yes, we're opening a book in our laps or we are opening an app on our phone, but more than going to words on a page, we have an opportunity to fellowship with the creator of the universe. For me, having grown up in the church, been exposed to reading the Bible my whole life, I have to remind myself of this at times because sometimes I have a familiarity that I import into my time in God's Word. I might find myself at a passage that I've read many, many, many times, and what I'll do is, is I say, at times I'm tempted, and sometimes I give in. I might skim through that passage because I already know it. The facts of that passage are already in my head. I want to ask you if that's where you are, to abandon that approach to scripture. I want to remind you that Jesus is God's word. I want to remind you that as we go into God's word today, don't approach it as information. Approach the word as a person. A person. And whether or not you've seen this a thousand times, or this is the first time you've ever laid eyes on this passage, treat it with dignity and care, and reverence. This is God's word. This 
is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so I want to ask you today to join me in God's word. I don't stand over you. I stand among you. Let us worship him together this morning. Let's worship him together. Um, I love these. I'm just going to be talking through the first five verses as Steve read. Um, I love this text of scripture. This text of scripture is a holy ground passage. We are literally a fly on the wall as Jesus unveils his heart to the Father. And I love these first few words of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. We are being invited into Jesus' mystery and Jesus' sacredness. We are being invited into Jesus' fear and Jesus' yearning. Why do I say fear? In the next, on the next day, Jesus will be killed. This is the evening before Jesus will be beaten severely and crucified and will die. Jesus just experienced the last supper, as we call it, with his disciples. It was here that Jesus pointed out his accuser who was going to sell him out to the religious authorities that would ultimately lead to his death. It's been an intense, it's been a lonely, it's been a harrowing night already. Jesus is with his disciples though, the ones he trusts the most. He's eaten with them. And he spends just a few chapters telling them things that they need to hear because soon Jesus physically will not be with them any longer. He will be sending his spirit. He won't be with them. And so here are some of the things that Jesus has already said because it says when Jesus had spoken these words, then he started to pray. So his prayer was instigated by these words he already spoke. The heart behind Jesus' prayer in John 17 can be found in John chapters, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. And it's there that he just, I'm just going to briefly give a quick overview. It's there that he says things like this in John 14, 15, and 16. He reminded his disciples that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And yes, he needed them to remember that, yes, he's the only way to God. But he also wanted them to remember that in the days ahead, when they will experience the most fear and the most loneliness and deep feelings of isolation when Jesus is gone, they will need to remember that Jesus is their way. Jesus is their truth. Jesus is their life. They need to cling to these words. Tough days lie ahead. He is our guide along the path. He is the path. And he is the destination to where the path leads. Jesus is everything. He needed them to remember that. They needed to remember that. Here's something else that he told them in John chapters 14 through 16. He indicated that he was going to be departing, but that he would send the Spirit to be with them in his physical absence. 
They needed to know that just because Jesus physically wasn't with them, that they were not impaired from this point forward. That they have access to the living God just as much as they did when they were able to walk up to him and touch him. Don't forget that, disciples. My spirit is with you. And he goes on to talk about how the spirit is their comforter or their helper and how the spirit will remind them of the truth of the gospel and always lead them back into that truth. He also reminded them that the spirit would give them words when they were brought before rulers and really important people who could hurt them because of their faith. I am with you, Jesus is saying. I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. This is something else that he said. He reiterated that he is the vine and we, his followers, are branches that grow from that vine. That just because he sends the Spirit doesn't mean it's just automatic. He says, you must abide in me. Your worldview, your approach to life must be such that you do not feel, you do not believe you can competently put one foot in front of the other without being in communion with me, the Spirit. You must believe this. You must find your identity in me. You must find your path in me. You must find your future in me. You must see me as everything, everything. And I want to remind you, if that seems too domineering, too heavy-handed, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Don't believe the lies in our culture that say that Jesus is here to take away life from you. That Jesus is going to withdraw joy from you. No, he is the giver of joy. We must believe this. We must believe this. We must believe this. We must abide in him because this is critical because we, his followers, will face hardship in this life because this world is oppressive. And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to go through hardship. Every person goes through hardship. We live in a broken world. Every person experiences hardship. Everyone does. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as this series goes on. So we should take comfort in the fact, and this is something else Jesus says, We didn't choose him, but he chose us. And that should give us a lot of peace. It's not my job to keep myself saved. He chose me. He saved me. He swept into my life and my destiny went from here to there. Boom, changed. And despite my my weaknesses, my brokenness, my flaws, my impulsive sinful habits, I and being controlled, loved, guided, pastored by Jesus Christ. He is shepherding me. He is shepherding you. He told his disciples that any sorrow we might experience will be turned into joy. Because, as he said in the last verse of chapter 16 before he says this prayer, Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And so that prayer that he prays is all about the power of the Spirit in the believer's life helping us 
to overcome this world. Anybody want to overcome the world? Anybody tired of being a slave to the world? Anybody tired of the more you look at yourself, the more you look like the world and not like Jesus? I don't want that in my life either. I don't want that either. He's overcome the world. Tomorrow, he will die. Today, he prays over his disciples. What does it mean that he's overcome the world? That seems like, a, like just, just a shockingly uh, uh, crazy claim. When I look around at the world that we see around us, I still see murder in our streets. I still see mayhem. I still see trafficking and injustice and bigotry and hatred and all of these terrible things that we see in our world. And Jesus makes this seemingly crazy claim, I have overcome the world. What did he mean by that? And this is where I want to go to Colossians chapter 2, the second passage that we read, and think about this for a couple of minutes. What did Jesus mean when he said, I have overcome the world? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. The scriptures say this about Jesus. He. Anybody want to guess who that he is? Jesus. Good guess. That should be your default answer in questions like that. You might get it wrong if it's talking about like the devil in that text, but this text is talking about Jesus. So you're right if you said Jesus and if you thought Jesus. Um, he, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I love how Paul says that. Jesus triumphed over spiritual forces of darkness. By tri he triumphed over them in him. This is an invitation that as we are in him, we also triumph over spiritual darkness in our world. Now, this, this verse didn't come out of nowhere. This verse emerged from a context. There are some statements that Paul makes before he says Jesus triumphed over darkness. And here are the statements, and you can read those in verses 11 through 14. All right, verses 11 through 14. Remember, we are going not just to information right now. We are being with Jesus. Let's be with Jesus together here. Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Check this out. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that's interesting. So he's talking about some sort of a spiritual circumcision because it's not a physical one. It's a spiritual circumcision. What is that? Paul elaborates. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh. Putting off the body of the flesh. Well, I still have my physical body, so obviously he doesn't mean this body by putting it off. What body of flesh is he talking about? He's talking about sin that is locked into us. Sinful habits that take control of us. These things have been circumcised in our lives. They've been cut off. How were they cut off? By the circumcision of Christ. How was Christ circumcised? Christ went to the cross. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He was circumcised in our place. He died for us. He was circumcised. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now it's talking about us. Having been buried with Jesus in baptism 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So he's talking about a, a real and literal but spiritual truth. That those of us who put our trust in Jesus, we literally, when we, as we put our faith in Jesus, and our baptism is a picture of this, we are dead with him, and then we are raised into new life with him. Now Jesus, when he was raised, he was given a new body. One day down the road at a certain point that none of us knows, and if any preacher claims to know when that is, turn off the television. At some point down the road, Jesus will return and all of those who were in Christ will be given new bodies. And those of us who have these new bodies, we are not, as I often say, because I have to say this in the South, because we've been taught and trained to believe that heaven is floating on clouds playing a harp. That is not our destiny. We might play a harp if that's something you're really into. Knock yourself out. So I don't think all of us will be playing harps. We will have real bodies, and we will live in a real world called the new creation. And the new creation will be a merger of heaven and earth. And it will be a world in, that is illuminated by the glory of Jesus. And with our new bodies that we can touch things with, and hug people with, we will be able to spend time with and gaze into the glorious eyes of Jesus. We will see perfection. And there will be nothing that we've ever experienced on this earth that will give us the awe that Jesus' face will. Nothing will. Nothing will. This is our future. In the meantime, we wait. We anticipate with our resurrected souls. The scriptures teach that we still, yes, endure old, sinful, stale habits. And we go through this process in our lives called sanctification. Kind of a scary word, but basically it's having a relationship with Jesus. It's having a relationship with Jesus. Uh, recently, Scott Sauls, one of my favorite authors, said something along these lines on Twitter. He said, if you want to be like Jesus, quit trying to be like Jesus and be with Jesus. Abide in him. Be with him. Love him. Enjoy him. Enjoy him. And so he says this, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How has he made us alive? He raised us up and gave us new hearts. Ezekiel talks about of the, of the time of the Messiah having a stony heart that is swapped for a heart of flesh. Jesus did that to us when he saved us. Not only that, he forgave us of all of our trespasses, past, present, and future. All of our trespasses are forgiven. All of them are. Not only that, but he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. All of scripture that pointed its finger at the death of our souls and said, guilty, Jesus stepped in front of that finger and said, I will take the punishment for all that they have done. All that they have done. This is what Jesus 
has done for us. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. This was going through Jesus' head when he was praying that prayer in John 17, or something like it. This was going. So just as a recap really quick, I've got a slide I want to show you to talk about what this is all about. So Jesus has overcome the world. That's what he says at the end of John 16. Paul, in Colossians 2, 11 through 15, teases that out. What does it look like that Jesus has overcome the world? Here's what he did. He raised us up with baptism and made us new creation people. I know, I know, I know. You still get mad when you drive and yell at people. I know that. You're still a new creation person. Your behavior hasn't caught up with your soul yet, but you're a new creation person. I know you are addicted to things. I know that. I know that. You are still a new creation person. You don't have a new body yet. That's coming. This is why the Bible says the just, the righteous, live by faith. We trust what God says about us, not what we say about ourselves. My shame tells me I'm broken and beyond forgiveness. I'm beyond the reach of it. My shame tells me I'm not worthy of God. My shame tells me that my sin is so sordid and sinister that I'm beyond the reach of grace. Jesus, Jesus says, if you trust me, greater am I who is in you than he who is in the world. If you trust me, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. if you trust me. If you trust me, your shame is silenced and my words now define you as a person. You are righteous. You are loved. You are beloved. Jesus wants to be with you. That's what John chapter 17 verse 23 says. Jesus is praying later in this prayer and he says, God, he basically says, I thank you that you love the ones you've given me as much as you love me. Can you believe that? Us in our addictions, us in our, in our meanness, us in our toxic relationships, we are nothing like Jesus when it comes to our righteousness. Yet, yet, if we have faith in him, God looks at us as if we are as righteous as Jesus is. Not only that, he just doesn't legally accept us. He embraces us with the same passionate, tender longing that he does for Jesus. He loves you that much. On your worst day, in your worst moment, Jesus wants to be with you. This is what it means when it says we're new creation people. We're being shaped for a new world. We're being shaped by Jesus to be the kinds of people who will not be enslaved to our addictions and our sinful tendencies anymore. That's all going to go away at the new creation. Now, we walk by faith. What else does it mean 
that we're, Jesus has overcome the world. He's, made, he's raised up followers who are new creation people, who are a forgiven people. Our trespasses have been silenced. Not only this, but he has made us a free people. We'd have, we don't have to live by merit anymore. We don't earn God's favor. Jesus earned it for us. We are free. We are in grace. We are loved. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are treasured by God. And he disarmed the wicked forces of evil in our lives. And that's what all that boils down to. This is what it means that Jesus has disarmed darkness. We are a new creation people. We are a forgiven people. We are a free people in grace. And come hell or high water, Jesus commands our destiny. And he treasures us as much as he treasures his time, his fellowship in the Trinity. This is why he left that glory, to come and be with us. To be with us. He died on the cross, bearing our sin. This is scandalous and beautiful, if we really take this in. It's scandalous and beautiful. So I've gotten through the first phrase of verse 1. Let's move on. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father... The hour has come, meaning his, the hour of his death, his suffering. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Glorify your son. It sounds kind of prideful to say glorify me. But let's remember, Jesus is glory. Jesus is radiance. It's who Jesus is. Jesus longs to be restored to what he is, to what he was. It's glory and radiance is the truth about Jesus. But he just doesn't want it so he can be glorious and radiant. He wants it so he can glorify the Father. But interestingly, in order for Jesus to become glorious and radiant again, he must die. He must die. One of the things that we're going to see about John 17 over the next few weeks is John 17 isn't just Jesus' prayer for us. It's the frame of the Christian life. It's the frame of our life in Jesus. In uh, verse 2, it says, there are three gifts that are given. It's interesting. Three gifts. Y'all see how we're tying this in with Christmas? See what, see what we did there? Okay. Um, so there are three gifts that are given. One is authority, the authority that God gave to Jesus. The second gift is eternal life, the gift that Jesus gives to certain people God has given him. And that's the third gift, people. People are a gift to Jesus. God the Father, it says in verse 2, God the Father gives Jesus, his son, a gift. And that gift are those people who love him. Now here's what's interesting. Five times throughout John 17, this is said. Five times it says Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift is us. Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift is his servants. Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift are his servants. Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift is his servants. I'm trying, see, I'm using is and are because I'm not sure what, how that works there. Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift is his servants. Jesus has been given a gift, and that gift is his servants. Do you think John wants us to remember something here? That those of us who follow Jesus, 
We are God's gift to Jesus. Do you conceive of your relationship with God that way? When you think about your salvation, the eternal life that God has given you, do you ever think of it in that regard, that I am a gift that God gave to his son? I am a gift. That's huge as we get to verse 3. Check this out. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. In the context of five times, Jesus thanking the Father for giving him the gift of us. He says, let me give you the definition of what salvation is. Eternal life. And he doesn't say, he says something surprising. He doesn't say eternal life is living forever. He says, he doesn't even mention that. He says eternal life is knowing the Father and his son Jesus whom he has sent. That's eternal life. Now when you read that in isolation, that's great. We like to think about what we've been given. Man, I get a relationship with Jesus. I get to live forever. That is awesome. But he doesn't say that in isolation. The context is five times throughout this text, this one chapter, Jesus says, your servants, my servants, have been given to me by the Father. And so the question should not be, what do I get out of my relationship with Jesus? Rather, the question should be, what does God get out of it? What does God get out of me experiencing eternal life? What does God get out of me being given to Jesus? I mean, think about that for a second. If you're in church mode right now, get out of that and get in Jesus worshiping mode, all right? Think about that for a second. What do you feel when these words go through your mind? I am a gift from God the Father to his son, Jesus. How does that make you feel? I don't know about you, but I feel responsibility. I feel weight. I feel a sense of gratitude that I'm loved and treasured, that God actually looks at me like a gift. Wow. Because oftentimes my voice of shame in my head tells me that I'm not worth it. And God's voice is saying, you are. You're a treasure to me. I love you. You are cherished by me. So cherished that when I had a chance to give my son a gift, I gave him you. So I feel that. I feel the joy of that. I feel the love in that. I feel the affirmation from God. But I also feel, wait, I am a possession of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I am his. I'm his. And that's what this context is in verse 3. What is eternal life? that we may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's eternal life. In the context of me being a cherished possession of Jesus. You know what else it makes me feel? It makes me feel thankful and secure. I need those words when I feel like my life's going off the rails. When I feel like I have no control and no power. And I am at the beck and call of circumstance. It reminds me that Jesus cherishes me and I belong to him. And he rules my life. Sometimes I don't believe it. 
But he does. He does. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth. I glorified you. I embraced humanity. I left heavenly splendor. I taught the ways of God, God's vision for how the world should work. I demonstrated mercy to the brokenhearted. And I demonstrated righteous anger against systems of injustice and oppression. I healed broken bodies and I raised up dead bodies. I was intimate with you, Father, my whole life. My whole life. I've trained the 12 and I've commissioned them to train others. And Jesus is speaking here in the past tense. I've already accomplished what you've called me to do. He's speaking of the cross in the past tense. Jesus has such a single-minded devotion to the cross because of his love for us. He speaks of it as already being done. It's done. There's no turning back. I love them that much. I have finished the work you've given me. This prayer that Jesus prays is the frame of the Christian life. We're going to end with this. I'm going to show you one more slide. This is the frame of the Christian life. How does this frame the Christian life? In John 17, we see this in just the first five verses. We were chosen by the Father, loved by him, the same way Jesus was loved. We were given to the Son. Why were we given to the Son? Why? In the same way that the Son was given the responsibility to advance the mission of God on the earth, by being given to the Son means that we are too. Somebody say amen to that. You need to say amen to that. I'm going to say it again. Because we have been given to the Son, that means that our responsibility is His responsibility. One and the same. In the same way that Jesus gave up His heavenly glory to come advance the mission of God, so have we been given this responsibility. We have been given to the Son. And also, by the Spirit, we glorify God in this troubling world. Jesus says, I worked. I did everything you told me to do. I have glorified you, and I will glorify you. In the same way, we live in a troubling, hard world, and we also glorify Jesus through our troubles. We glorify him. We glorify him. And as we do this, we anticipate our future glory. Jesus was looking ahead to his glory. Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. We are praying the same prayer. The scriptures teach us that our destiny is that we will experience glorification. We will have new bodies. We will live in the new creation and we will be with Jesus and we will be with one another and enjoy one another. This prayer frames all of our Christian life. If you want to know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in a jacked up world, meditate and read and feast on John 17. And so I want to ask you, I want to ask you, is your deepest longing and will your deepest longing be to know him? Will it be? Will you go from co-opting the Christian faith? Will I go? from co-opting the Christian faith and making it about me to daily interacting with it in such a way that I ask, what do you get out of this, God? What do you get out of this? And what do you make 
of the weighty truth that you belong to Jesus. If, if, you, are, if you follow him, this isn't true of everybody. You belong to Jesus, the ones God has given him. What do you do with that? Friends, this is step one in John 17. These are weighty truths. And we want your soul to feel the weight of this truth. We want you to experience this. We want there to be a holy reverence as you walk through not just the season of Advent with your families, with your friends, and worship, but as you walk through the rest of your life. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love for us. And I pray in your name that every one of us, every single one of us, will connect with the weight of this truth that we belong to you. We are your gift to your son. Jesus, we love you.